There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef. And today we have with us Cleveland Clinic urologist, Dr. Ryan Berglund, to address some common or uncommon questions that men may ask or maybe even reluctant to ask their doctors when it comes to below the belt. So thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me on. I want to give you a few moments to just introduce yourself to our viewers. Uh, my name is Ryan Berglund. I'm on the uh, staff of the Glickman Urologic and Kidney Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, I also do a uh, radio segment where I address uh, men's questions about uh, kind of embarrassing um, uh, health questions they may have. Uh, yeah. So that, that's... And what is that called again? Is it red? Is it red? Okay, <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for being here. And before we begin, please remember this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. So I want to talk a little bit about the Mention It survey and some of the results that we got out of it. So two online surveys were conducted amongst a total of approximately 2,000 U.S. Americans, 18 years or older, living in the U.S. The Mention It survey was conducted in order to get insights into the behaviors and attitudes of men related to their health, including their go-to sources to discuss health and their health concerns. So some key findings that I wanted to mention. So many men keep health changes to themselves. Obviously, we, we know that. So 43% of men would not discuss frequent erectile dysfunction they're experiencing with their partner. And 41% of men do not uh, would not discuss painful erections with their partner. Um, but then when it comes to more um, um, stronger issues, they might bring it up. So like 60, 67% of American men would see a doctor right away for blood in their urine, and 46% of men would see a doctor promptly for painful erections. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Why do you think that is? And do women play a role? Well, you know, this is the third year of our survey. So the, it, mention it. So M-E-N-T-I-O-N, mention it. Mm -hmm. Mention if you have a problem. And so the first couple of years were uh, looking at men and why they don't seek health care. And, you know, we all kind of sort of know these things. But the fact is that men, uh, as our past surveys uh, proved, they don't want to bother people. Mm -hmm. It's considered not manly to talk about health problems. And as you know, as some of the issues that you discussed, talking about erectile dysfunction, it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. You know, they, people don't like to admit that they have it. They don't like this. Isn't a it's kind of a taboo subject. So this year, we wanted to look at uh, the role that women play in that decision making process because we know that. I mean, I can tell you my own personal relationship. My wife hassles me about going to see the doctor, and I'm not the best about it, I'll, I'll admit it. Yeah. And we're trying to figure out why um, why men don't go and then what role women can play in the process. Over 80% of women uh, tell us that they have pressured or have in some way their male significant other to go see the doctor. And then we look at our the, the men, a third of them say they're too healthy to go see the doctor, which mm -hmm. we know is completely incorrect. <laughs> and then over half of them admit to not seeing the doctor regularly, even when they know that they have a problem. So, um, you know, one of the questions I get is, how do, how do we fix this problem? Right. And, and I think that that, that, that is a, a question which I don't necessarily have all the answers to. Right, right. Well, all we could do is educate, right? 
Yeah, you know, that, that said, and, and one of the things that, that comes up is that oftentimes men don't go to see the doctor until they really have a problem, you know, until they're, you know, they're having chest pain or they're slurring of the speech or they're, you know, blood and urine, et cetera. Okay. So one of the things we're encouraging men to do is to be more comfortable uh, establishing a relationship with a primary care physician, someone who can be the quarterback of their care. Mm-hmm. So I've, I'll very frequently have a man show up with a, a significant medical problem and uh, they don't have a primary care physician. I have no primary care physician to send a, a letter to, et cetera. Hmm. So the primary care physician may not be able to manage the kind of complicated urologic problem, but they would be the one to determine there's a problem and then send you in, in, in the right direction. Sure, sure. Great. Well, I wanted to talk about one of our Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials posts. You mentioned some questions that men are afraid to ask their doctors. So I kind of wanted to go over some of these. So. First question, can a man break his penis? The answer is yes. It's called a penile fracture. We have a, a funny photograph that kind of circulates, that, and it's on the Internet, too. If you, if you Google it, <laughs> you'll find it. That, that's an X-ray that shows a, you can kind of see a, a penis in silhouette and then a broken bone in the middle of it. Ooh. And just to be clear, there is no bone I was gonna in, say, the, in, the, yeah. in the human penis. And interestingly, right. there are species that do have bones in their penis. So the whale, the walrus, the raccoon, the dog... Wow. Uh, but we, in fact, do not have a, a bone in our penis. So the, the question is, well, what are you breaking? And there's actually a layer of tissue called the tunica albigenia, a very strong layer, which is what allows for the, the uh, erection to become rigid, that during uh, certain types of kind of vigorous intercourse can, can, uh, can break. And um, when that happens, we, uh, we tend to see something that's called the eggplant eggplant sign. You can imagine what that means. The, the penis looks like a big eggplant. Yeah. Because when that layer uh, ruptures, uh, the, um, the, the you bleed into the subcute, oh. the subcute tissues and the, the penis swells up and kind of looks like a like an eggplant. Wow. And uh, if that is a surgical emergency. It needs to okay. be repaired. So that is a reason to, to, uh, to come in and seek help. Now, people will frequently talk about, uh, you know, I, I heard a snapping or a popping. Uh, during intercourse, uh, without seeing that that kind of um, uh, that kind of effect, it's probably just uh, you know something else that caused that noise, but it wasn't really uh, wasn't a fracture. And I would imagine it would be extremely painful if you actually extremely, break it. It is okay. painful. So you would and know it, if it's just a noise. It's not and... subtle. It's not okay. subtle when it happens. Okay. Sometimes uh, sometimes after intercourse, they'll notice some blood in the urine as well. That can mean mm. that the fracture involved the. Uh, the urethra. Wow. Okay, and jumping on to the next question. Uh, erectile dysfunction in young men, is it normal? So erectile dysfunction itself is actually very common, okay. and your chance of having some degree of erectile dysfunction is roughly equivalent to your decade of life. Mm-hmm. So men in their 50s, about 50% of them will have some degree of erectile dysfunction. But what we're talking about is profound erectile dysfunction. And by erectile dysfunction, there are a lot of there are a lot of things that we call sexual dysfunction, but erectile dysfunction is specifically referring to the inability to obtain and maintain an erection sufficient for intercourse. So men under the age of 50, uh, in, in men under the age of 50, it's uncommon to have profound erectile dysfunction. And there's a high correlation between erectile dysfunction and cardiovascular disease. Wow. So over half of patients that are getting uh, uh, bypass surgery for heart disease mm-hmm. have erectile dysfunction. Two thirds of patients that have a heart attack have uh, coexisting erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So, ED can be a, a sign of, of heart disease. Uh, 
And a young man that has ED, in addition to the fact that it can be embarrassing, it can cause problems with relationships, it can also be a sign of, of uh, cardiovascular disease, that's when you need to see your, your primary care physician. Sure. Dietary screening, family history, uh, blood pressure, checking all of these things that can potentially be, be managed. Sure, sure. Okay, and then what about um, if a penis has acne or spots on it? And I know we talked earlier and you said that was one of um, one of the most popular questions that maybe you're getting in your in your practice, so maybe we can talk about that. So everybody has, you know, spots and bumps on their penis, and that's in, in most cases normal. And mm -hmm. the question is, when are these uh, abnormal? I, I see patients all the time, nine times out of ten, uh, they're normal, but what, are we, what should we be concerned about? Ulcerative lesions are a concern. Mm -hmm. um, so anything that is eroding the uh, skin, so painful uh, erosions that can be anything from, uh, uh, it can be a sexually transmitted disease like herpes, um, non-painful can also be sexually transmitted disease, a classic example there would be syphilis. And then, of course, truly erosive lesions can represent penile cancer. Now, in, in everybody that comes in with, a, with something on their penis, the first thing they're worried about is, do I have penile cancer? And let me be very clear about a couple of things with penile cancer. Penile cancer is uncommon in the United States. It's actually uncommon in countries that have high rates of neonatal circumcision. Okay. It is exceedingly rare, almost unheard of, let's just put it at exceedingly rare for, for an individual that has neonatal circumcision to develop penile cancer. Interestingly, having a circumcision later in life is not protective um, okay. against uh, penile cancer. But penile cancer is, is very unusual um, in the United States. It can happen. It tends to be an erosive lesion, something that is causing destruction uh, to the surrounding tissue. Now, some early stages can, can present more as kind of reddish ra ra uh, rashes, a little bit of weeping rashes, et cetera. It's always good to have a professional uh, take a look at it, but um, in the third world, actually, uh, uh, penile cancer is actually fairly fairly common. Common. Yeah. So, how about testicular cancer, and and how old should a man be to get tested? So, you know, there's no argument that women should do a, a, a monthly breast exam, and it's it's tricky because you know, you know, someone who's not an expert in doing a breast exam may not be able to to find a. a subtle module, but right. women should should uh, conduct a monthly breast exam. We, we do recommend that men conduct a monthly testicular self-exam, mm -hmm. and the population that we're most concerned about is the age from 15 to 45. Mm -hmm. Testicular cancer is the most common cancer in men from 15 to 45, and um, it tends to present as a painless mass in the testicle. Now there are exceptions. Some people can have painful masses and there's always a question about whether or not it's inside the testicle. You will feel uh, masses and other things outside the testicles. Some of those are normal structures like the epididymis. Sometimes you can have cysts, etc., that are in the um, in some of the surrounding tissue, but mm -hmm. you should not have a, a mass in the testicle. Testicular cancer is a true success story in cancer treatment in the United States. Uh, well over 90% of patients who develop uh, testicular cancer will end up being cured of their disease. Um, and so uh, early detection and treatment can, can save lives. And so uh, monthly self, uh, testicular self-exam is advised. And the easiest way to do it is 
Do it in the shower once a month. Yeah, mm-hmm. just like just like women, just like yeah, you mentioned. Exactly. But you're saying for men to start at 15. It is the most common cancer in men from 15 to 45. Wow, oh, it's very un, it, It's uncommon. It, it, it's it's certainly possible. It's uncommon in the prepubescent male, mm-hmm. and it is um, it is uncommon in the older male. But we can see cases uh, cases in both sure. groups. So sure. I'm not saying that those groups don't necess- don't need to examine them examine themselves. But that that 15 to 45 age range is is kind of the sweet spot of where. Sure. Uh, testis cancer occurs. Okay, what about um, if a woman can transmit a UTI to a man during sexual intercourse? That was a question that I saw that a lot. Women um, have a greater propensity to getting urinary tract infections because number one, the, the, the vaginal flora includes bacteria that lead to infection, number one. Number two, um, the female urethra is, is very shortened. And so it's easier for bacteria to track via the urethra up into the bladder. The male urethra is much longer. It's harder for bacteria to get into the bladder. And frankly, uh, urinary tract infections in men um, tend to be tend to represent other disorders. So, okay. for instance, obstructive um, urination from an enlarged prostate. Hmm. But transmitting E. coli from a female with urinary tract infection to a male, it, it's not really that's not the way it works. Now. Women and men can transmit sexually transmitted diseases right. to each other. So, right. not urinary tract infections, but let's say let's look at um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases that like urethritis, so gonorrhea, chlamydia. Those are easily transmittable right. between between men and women. But that's not going to be your standard urinary tract infection. Sure. Now, if someone is worried about that, how often or how fast do you go get checked out if you think you have a sexually transmitted disease? Because I know some it's, show later. I heard in your radio it's a problem, show. It's probably latency. <laughs> yeah, right. Latency. Yeah. Um, so um, a number of the tests that we have for different uh, sexually transmitted diseases um, include um, tests that test for an immune response mm-hmm. to uh, the bacteria or virus or um, test for the presence of the virus, the bacteria first. And with the initial infection, you may not actually see sufficient numbers of the bacteria or virus to be able to get a positive result, or you may not see it. You may not have enough time to see an immune response. So um, if you have a high risk exposure, uh, number one, you should avoid just uh, maintain some type of uh, barrier protection uh, until uh, you've had time to get tested and then testing really uh, minimum of a, a month or two uh, okay. after the uh, after the exposure okay good. so that's a good question now I'm I do I am getting some live questions so I'm gonna get some questions before I keep going okay. on here I have Marie um, can you discuss frequency of urination for prostate cancer patients with a secondary disease of diabetes oh that's a great question Fantastic question. One of the interesting things about prostate cancer is that, in general, by the time you have symptoms from it, it's mm-hmm. usually too late. Okay. So if you look at the pre-PSA, or PSA is, a, is the screening test for prostate cancer. It's been called the male mammogram. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the pre-PSA era, most of our patients being diagnosed with prostate cancer were being diagnosed with symptomatic disease, and um, the, it was incurable at that point. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the prostate cancer that we're trying to diagnose these days, we're usually not having urinary symptoms. Urinary symptoms from prostate cancer would be a late phase of disease, and oftentimes you have other symptoms. 
pelvic pain, bony pain, you know, something else like that. So I would not look at urinary symptoms as being a sign of prostate cancer so much as it either is a sign of prostatic problems, prostatic enlargement, which is usually benign, or in this case with diabetes, uh, diabetics can develop a diabetic bladder, essentially uh, neurologic and muscle-related problems mm. that the diabetes itself is causing for the bladder. Okay. Now, how about blood and urine? Is that is, is does that mean that something's That's too great, late too? Great question. So, blood in the urine is the most common presenting symptom of uh, bladder cancer, mm. and um, visible blood in the urine, roughly. 20% of patients that have visible blood in the urine will end up having a bladder cancer. Mm. So certainly seeing blood in the urine should be uh, worked up uh, for bladder cancer. Now interestingly, most of the time we see a patient with visible blood in the urine, um, we can't, can't find the cause mm -hmm. of, of the blood in the urine. So the point of the workup is to make sure that you don't have a bladder cancer. Now the next question there though is what about a microscopic blood in the urine? Microscopic blood in the urine has a much lower rate of having bladder cancer, about 3 to 5%. But we still do recommend a workup because bladder cancer, like prostate cancer, if it's diagnosed early, is easy to, to uh, much easier to, to intervene and, and successfully treat. Sure. Now you said 20% they would be getting bladder cancer. If what about the, the 80%? So 80% sometimes we'll find another cause. I you see. know, we see bleeding from the prostate or we okay. see a little blood. You know, people can have a proverbial bloody nose of the, the, uh, pro of the, of the bladder. Right. So a little blood dust or something, a stone, something, something else that's caused it, caused it. But most of the time we do not find the cause of the, um, uh, most of the time we don't find the cause of, of the blood in the urine. We're just trying to make sure it's not a bad cause, not a sure. bladder cancer. Sure. All right. And then I have Felicia. What can be done for enlarged prostate? Uh, the answer is a lot, <laughs> and um, that field has really grown. It's a very, very common problem. The prostate tends to, uh, the, the, the prostate is located at the outlet of the bladder, and growth of the prostate tissue can block the flow of urine outside the bladder. And so this obstruction um, can lead to symptoms like frequent urination at night, weak stream, difficulty emptying the bladder, and at some point can, can ultimately lead lead to the complete inability to empty the bladder. The first thing we do is we try um, uh, behavioral modifications, limiting fluid intake at night, um, limiting uh, bladder irritants, so uh, spicy foods, uh, caffeine, etc. cetera. Mm. Uh, but, but if those don't work, and they frequently don't, we then go to medications. And we have uh, two broad categories of medications that can help uh, alpha blockers, which will relax the muscle tissue that's in the prostate to relieve some of that obstructive effect of the prostate, and then 5-alpha uh, reductase inhibitors that shrink the prostate over time. Mm -hmm. If those don't work, um, we can actually go forward with interventions. We actually have uh, minimally invasive techniques and larger surgical techniques that we can use to either reduce the size or even completely remove the obstructing uh, prostate tissue to allow emptying the bladder. Okay. Great. And then Steve um, says, I saw a commercial about smoking causing ED. Is that true? Absolutely. And smoking causes everything, sounds like. But yeah, so that's smoking. that's one big risk factor. Steve, that's a, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Smokers frequently uh, experience ED for, for the same reasons that, that they have a higher rate of having heart disease and stroke. Yeah. It causes disease of the small blood vessels mm. that lead to the penis, which lead 
to erectile dysfunction, just like they lead, just like smoking leads to the disease that narrows the artery in our heart, right. or can narrow the arteries uh, that, that go to our brain. Okay, and then Christopher, I have a dribble after I pee. Is that normal? What causes it, and what should I do? So that's frequently called terminal dribble. That is a very common sign of an enlarged prostate. Mm. So um, if that's your only presenting sign, some people will say, eh, you know, I just stand at the toilet a little bit longer, and, um, and, and they're okay with that. But some people it gets really uh, significant to the point that you're, you're you know, it's causing some hygiene problems, you're getting you know, urine in the underwear, and that would be a reason that people would proceed with treatment for BPH. And, Treatments are medications and with the possibility of a procedure down the road. Okay. All right. I'm going back to some of my questions here. So is it Peyronie's disease? Peyronie's, Peyronie's, yes. So what is that and why is it a concern? Peyronie's disease, uh, and very frequently I'll have patients with Peyronie's disease present in my clinic uh, concerned they have penile cancer. And the first thing that we notice about Peyronie's disease is Peyronie's disease is a uh, lump or bump that is inside the penis that is not on the um, outside. It's not an, an, an erosive lesion or, a, or an ulcerative lesion. And it is, um, uh, it's, a, it's essentially a plaque of that tunica albigenia, that, that strength layer of the penis that allows us to have um, erections, the part of the penis that can get fractured with a, with a penile fracture. Mm. Um, when you develop this scar tissue, Normally, this tunic albuginia is very strong, but it's also very elastic, um, which allows for the, the, the characteristics of a, uh, of a normal erection. When you develop the scar tissue, it is not very elastic. It's strong, but not very elastic, and it can lead to curvature of the penis, pain with intercourse, narrowing of the penis, and, and erectile dysfunction. So um, it can be treated, but the question is, do you have a, a problem that needs to be treated? So uh, there are a number of treatments available, surgical and also now a, a treatment that um, can break down the scar tissue, but all these treatments have risks. So we tend to treat patients that have significant curvature that's caused by the uh, Peyronie's and curvature that leads to an inability to engage in, in, in satisfactory intercourse. Hmm. Um, so... Uh, Does that include surgery or...? Surgery is one, is one approach. Hmm. The, the most common... Uh, treatment we have right now is to inject a collagenase, a, a drug into the plaque that breaks down the plaque. And but I'll have I'll have patients come in who will ask me well, why why wouldn't I just treat it? I can feel that there's a plaque there. The problem is that that treatment can potentially lead to, to rupture. And oh, wow. So you don't want to take it's a it's a it's a low risk, but you don't want to take that kind of risk if you're already having satisfactory intercourse. Right, so right. That's, the, that's, that's the whole idea there. It's also a fairly expensive treatment as well. Sure. And then uh, I want to talk about, is it normal to feel something in the testicles or scrotum? And what is normal and abnormal? So the, and this goes back to what are we, what are we really looking for? Mm -hmm. The biggest concern is, would be testicular cancer. Testicular cancer is a mass in the <laughs> testicle. So if you feel the testicle, you know, resembles kind of like a little bit like a hard-boiled egg. You shouldn't feel an irregularity, a nodule, uh, some kind of uh, distinct hardness that is inside the testicle. But there are a lot of tissues that are outside the testicle that are totally normal. So for instance, the epididymis, which is the sac that collects the sperm that's produced by the testicle and actually is the location where the sperm matures before it 
goes to the vents deference and, and ultimately out to the ejaculate fluid. Um, that's a normal structure to feel outside the testicles. So we'll have a lot of patients that come in and say, hey, I've got a mess in my, in my testicle and you actually feel the, you feel the testicle and it's normal, but you feel the sac-like structure outside the testicle. That's normal. Okay. The epididymis though can develop cysts. They're very common. They're almost always benign. Very uncommonly will have a solid mass. And those, while rare to be cancers, can potentially be cancers. And occasionally we do need to, at a minimum, monitor, but sometimes remove them. Mm -hmm. You can develop um, masses outside of uh, the, uh, the complex of the testis and the epididymis uh, in other uh, areas of the, uh, the cord. Those can very easily be evaluated on physical examination and ultrasound. And rarely, some of those masses will be solid and need to be removed. You can get rare tumor type sarcomas, et cetera, there, but most of those are going to be benign. Okay, great. Thank you. And then I have one more question. What about hemorrhage uh, cystitis? Hemorrhagic cystitis, yeah. Yes. Um, I'm not going to even know. Is it JCV? Oh, yeah. Vi the, the, from virus. Yes. Viral. <laughs> and an uh, immune suppressed patient, what is suggested? There are some antiviral agents that can be used um, in the um, immunocompromised uh, patient. Mm -hmm. Hemorrhagic cystitis is essentially an inflamed bladder that's bleeding. So okay. you can imagine an immunosuppressed patient, they're susceptible to certain viruses uh, because their immune system's not completely intact. Their immune system is being suppressed to protect their transplanted organ, mm -hmm. so they're more susceptible to getting viral infections. So some of those patients do require antiviral treatment, but in the, um, and that would be under the care of a transplant team and a transplant infectious disease uh, specialist. Uh, you would want to make sure that there is no, um, uh, there's no tumor there, uh, right. that um, you uh, have sufficient imaging and, and uh, endoscopic evaluation to make sure there's not a tumor present. Great. Well, we're running out of time, but I kind of wanted to give you the floor and kind of tell the men watching or listening or the women that have men in their life that they're concerned about. Yes. What should a man do when they should get tested? Is there an optimal diet, anti-inflammatory, just whatever, whatever you think is? Really, you know, the first and foremost, have a relationship with, with a primary care physician. You don't need to, you know, particularly in the younger years, you don't need to see them every year. But certainly in your 20s, you, need, you do need to have some kind of risk assessment of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. um, the critical time to, to start seeing your primary care physician on a regular basis is really in your 50s, certainly for screening for prostate cancer, certainly for screening for uh, colon cancer, and earlier in patients with a, a genetic uh, predisposition. Um, we're all, you know, guys, we're all guilty of this. I am, I am too. We don't like to go see the doctor. We don't like to bother uh, people with these problems. The, the problem, of course, though, is if you're waiting until you're having symptoms from prostate cancer or colon cancer or heart disease or stroke, it usually is too late. So if you wait till you had your stroke to see the doctor, that is an irreversible phenomenon in many cases. Um, uh, same with a, you know, a heart attack. If you're waiting until you have bone pain from prostate cancer, it, that, that usually is, it is too late. And the fact is that, for instance, with prostate cancer, which I routinely treat, if caught early, it has very, there are very high success rates and very low mortality rates caught at an early stage. It's good to know. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing. And to explore tips from our experts and learn why you should confide in your doctor when you first notice symptoms, please visit our website at www.clevelandclinic.org slash mention it. And for the latest health news and information from Cleveland Clinic, make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at Cleveland Clinic One Word. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. 
Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.